This is Wahid Jensen, and you are listening to Away Beyond the Rainbow. and welcome to a new episode of Away Beyond the Rainbow, this podcast series dedicated to Muslims experiencing same-sex attractions who want to live a life true to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Islam. I'm your host, Wahid Jensen. Thank you for joining us in today's episode. And uh, joining me again today is my dear friend Adam on our third episode on understanding and healing uh, from complex trauma. Assalamu alaikum, Adam. It's our third episode. I know, we're excited. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so as you guys remember, uh, in the last episode, we talked about the effects of complex trauma and the characteristics that emerge. We talked about shame and problems with coping with stress. And we covered a list of emotional, cognitive, as well as behavioral characteristics. Today, we will continue that discussion and wrap up with the interpersonal uh, slash relationship aspects. And we will cover the concept of trauma bonds, inshallah. There are a couple of characteristics associated with interpersonal relationships when it comes to individuals who have, um, you know, who grew up in unstable home environments or who struggle with complex trauma. So one of the major problems is having intimacy issues. Those issues are quite intense, right? And when we talk about feelings of intimacy, feelings of intimacy as in love, right? It does not necessarily have to be romantic relationships or within a marriage context. It can be within you know, deeply emotional platonic connections, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we inadvertently create conflict or chaos, right? Be In order to get this intensity, right? We want that experience to be intense. And as, as we remember before, we touched upon the issue of how the survival brain craves that adrenaline slash uh, stress hormone kick, and it thrives on intensity. So, if the relationship is not intense, right? If those feelings are not intense, then mm, it's it's kind of boring, right, right? Right. And the problem is, it it becomes very unstable, right? Um, a lot of us alternate between being overly involved and then withdrawing. So there's this push pull dynamic, very unstable, yeah. right? As opposed to having like a stable dynamic with the other person, it becomes. For quite some time, I would be overly involved and then automatically I would switch to the, you know, polar opposite, which is withdrawing completely, right? A lot of these relationships, unfortunately, because of the complex trauma, they're characterized by mistrust, jealousy, being needy and possessive, right? And sometimes we get preoccupied 
with real or imagined abandonment that might actually arise and so we become anxious of that right again we talked about shame the uh in the previous episode and we said there is this fear of me not being good enough and that the person is going to leave and that's the narrative that's lurking at the back of my mind mm-hmm. so i need to latch onto them to make sure that they don't leave or i'm going to withdraw because i don't feel good enough and they will leave me anyway and either this dynamic or that dynamic is going to hurt me and it's going to hurt the other person and in a previous episodes, we also talked about that, that attachment, the need for attachment with the parents. If we go back to our early childhood, we are wired as human beings to attach to our parents from a young age and then to fear abandonment, right? So we need proper attachment and, you know, we don't want to be abandoned. That's wired in us. And when we think about these two things, these end up being the driving forces for our relationships and they themselves become toxic right? I overly attach too much and then I'm so afraid of abandonment. And this dictates our relationship dynamic, Mm -hmm. right? And so as a result, how do we see this in relationships? We so badly want to connect to the other person and to have healthy intimacy because that is part of our human nature. But we are scared to death because we have not been used to it because it opens up a lot of the old wounds of abandonment and trauma. Right, And there's a lot of uncertainty associated with it. It means that if I want to be emotionally connected to someone else, I need to let down my guard. I need to tear down some of the walls that I've built around myself, right? To drop down those masks and to show an element of vulnerability, which is very scary. So um, when we go into relationships, we have a fear that people are going to find out about us, that they will abandon us. And that fear affects our relationships, right? So again, um, if we think about these two factors the desire to attach and the fear of abandonment uh, if we keep these in mind they can show us how you know our relationships are set up from the get-go to not be healthy and to eventually fail right a lot of them fail because of that and so complex trauma sets us up to not have healthy and proper balanced relationships and dynamics which is very sad and very tragic right Mm. but it's important to understand these things so we can work through our relationships by working, you know, on these problems themselves. And we're going to talk about this more as we go along in this episode and the next episode. The next episode is dedicated to talking about all of the healing work that goes into healing complex trauma and relationships and so on, inshallah. So in addition, um, as part of these intimacy issues, uh, people who have complex trauma can have a difficult time nurturing uh, emotions in themselves and in other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and often this stems from love that is or even just any sort of emotion that's uh, unexpressed but sort of understood uh, in the home environment. So to try and make this more tangible, um, children can often know that they are loved, but they don't necessarily always feel it. So this can make um, people who grew up in this type of environment um, uncomfortable when emotions are expressed. So parents might you know, it might be understood that there's love at home, for example, but it's not mm. it's not often expressed. So parents might not say or caregivers might not say, oh, I love you. Um, I adore you. You're, you know, so special to me or, you know, these types of lovely kind of sentiments. Mm-hmm. It might not have been expressed much. So when it is expressed or when those types of emotions are expressed, it could even be simple things like thank yous were not even said. It was just understood. Right. So in the home environment, um, if you did something nice for someone, 
you know, you didn't really get a thank you, but you you sort of like, well, that's fine. You know, it's just, it's just my brother. Yeah. It's just my sister. It's just whoever. So when you you start hearing thank yous and pleases outside, it can it can be a bit strange because you're so used to just getting on with things and not having those mm-hmm. sentiments expressed. So basically, without that type of nurturing, um, children and by extension adults who 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 experience such children will avoid feeling these types of emotions and those types of expressions because it just feels too intense and like uncomfortable right it's it's very unusual and then as a result these people will avoid forming emotionally connected relationships for the fear that the other person will come to be to rely on them mm-hmm. and grow to need them uh, because they don't have any idea how to nurture those emotional uh, communications, if, if 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 that makes sense. So I say I love you. You've never really heard it before, or you very rarely heard heard it uh, growing up. Mm-hmm. So now you're almost stumped and thinking, I don't know what to do with this. Or someone is just incredibly nice and kind to you, or very complimentary, and you you can understand that they're they're trying to compliment you and mm-hmm. nurture your sense of esteem. But you just don't know how to reciprocate that. Mm-hmm. So it's so tragic because everybody wants intimacy, mm-hmm. and for for people who are experiencing this type of uh, difficulty, the the challenge is that they also don't want to get hurt. Right. So instead, we settle with doing things yes. that feel yes. like getting intimacy, which are called pseudo intimacy, yeah. which we will talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that I feel I kind of nurture that side of me, but I don't get hurt. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so we we want intimacy, but we don't want to get hurt. So we will do things that feel like we're getting intimacy, uh, just not to get hurt. So we call this pseudo intimacy. Mm-hmm. And if we if we think about it, um, uh, addiction is essentially emotionally attaching to something. So whether that's a substance, uh, whether it's sex or whatever it might be, the whole uh, idea is that we can. Uh, attach ourselves to that thing and feel okay and complete and satisfied quote unquote for our time mm-hmm. and when we're dealing with addiction we have to understand that this is a false attachment it's almost it's a pseudo intimacy if you'd like and um, we, we have to deal and address that attachment and um, because if we don't know how to connect to people in a healthy way and and, and things that are good for us in a, in a, in a way and um, we can only uh, dream about being sober for you know, a certain period of time, it, it doesn't work. So there's this foundational uh, aspect mm-hmm. to overcoming these types of, uh, uh, you know, behaviors that um, needs to be addressed. Absolutely. And if we actually think about this, like any work, uh, any recovery work that uh, aims to help you overcome your addiction, if we don't fix the attachment problem, the original attachment problem, then there's going to always be a chance to get back to that numbing behavior that we've been used to. Right. So, um, yeah, that's very important to take into account. And as you were saying, uh, pseudo-intimacy, which is anything that we actually do that feels like intimacy, but it's not true intimacy. It's fake intimacy. That's why pseudo-intimacy. We engage in that so that we don't get hurt, but we think that we're getting our intimate needs met, but we're not. So examples of that. Let's go through some examples. Um, those of us who are part, you know, love sports and are part of sports teams or part of a work environment, you know, we feel like we're all buddies, you know, we're all colleagues, we're all part of the same team or part of the same group and we have the same goals, etc., etc. You know, we're close, 
someone might tell you, yeah, we're close, you know, but that's not true, true deep intimacy because we don't really know deep stuff about each other. We don't let our guards right. down. It's kind of like, okay, well, this is a nice relationship, but it, we can't really call it like intimacy. Yeah. Uh, another example is that, um, you know, people who hide behind jokes and laughter, like uh, they feel like they connect with other people by making them laugh right once we let other people laugh we all let our guards down but then again that's not true intimacy because i'm not getting to know the other person they're not getting to know me yes they relax because i'm making them laugh or they make me laugh but that doesn't make it intimacy yeah you basically become like the joker the entertainer right uh, and, and through that you develop or you sort of feed that desire for intimacy right but still it's not it's not true intimacy still feel unsatiated by that absolutely and again there's nothing wrong with making people laugh or having a sense of humor but if we consider that that my only uh intimate connection with people that's not really intimacy right yeah yeah right. yeah um another example is people who consider themselves to be good talkers so they talk a lot and they engage the people, you know, if, if they go out with friends or if they are part of a working group, when they talk about something like everyone is engaged, everyone listens and they feel that, oh my God, I'm connecting with those people. Well, yeah, there's a sense of connection. That's wonderful. But we can't really call that intimacy because, again, we are not getting to know people on a deep level yeah. or they're not getting to know us on a deep level. And another example of that is, you know, in, you know, uh, quote unquote intimacy, but about one topic. So we might find this uh, especially common in the recovery or the healing community where people just talk about one topic, they over fixate on it, but they don't know any other topic or they don't know about other things that are going on in their lives. Mm. Right. So let's say they talk about spirituality and they're amazing when they talk about that. Or they talk about sobriety and they're amazing when they talk about that. Or they know all of the psychological models when it comes to SSA or, you know, the support groups. Itself. But what about other things in life? Mm -mm, they blank out. Having that particular knowledge is good on its own. But then again, that's not true intimacy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because we're not addressing things on a deep level. We're not getting to know each other on a deep level. We're not being vulnerable with each other. Yes, I'm engaging with you and I'm talking to you and I'm having a connection. But that's not a deep, intimate, genuine connection. Right. Another example of pseudo intimacy, which we see all around us, is the social media world right we think that we're connecting with people which we are connecting with so many people around the world people that we know people that we don't know right but is that real sharing is that true and healthy intimacy that's not really the case yeah right um unless and here we're talking about like the superficial world of social media mm. you know some of us actually make very deep friendships even though we're not living in the same city or the same country and we can be vulnerable and uh, genuine long distance and that's fine yeah, but we're talking about like the texting constantly in the social media world that gives us this facade or this impression that, yeah, this is true intimacy, but it's not really that. So, no, I, I would agree with that. I, I think that that's, that's definitely a big one in our time. Mm -hmm. I think uh, another one to point out is is even within our families. So lots of people, when we think about and I, I've had conversations with people who have said, you know, my family environment was great. We did everything together. You know, we used to, ha you know, go out together, have fun together, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, they would not be wrong, I guess, for believing there was a level of intimacy there mm -hmm. or some type of, you know, connection, uh, love as well. Um, you know, there was a feeling of closeness. Right. But in those environments, um, 
there wasn't a real trust or honesty or vulnerability with each other. Mm-hmm. We knew each other, but we didn't really. We, we knew each other as far as the surface level things of life, the doing aspects, but we didn't really know one another's internal reality. What did you think or feel about this? You know, what are your hopes and aspirations and desires and uh, what uh, what are you struggling with right now? These types of things like uh, go amiss that is i would say the i would say that's the one of the cruxes of a true intimacy is being able to share those vulnerable aspects of us right with each other and without that it's just it's it's just it doesn't feel the same as as what true intimacy uh, is and i think we all know this on a deep level Mm. and when you were talking about uh when we're intimate with people on one topic i've had many relationships that are like that particularly Mm -hmm. in the work environment because you connect with people over, you know, a shared task, objective, mm-hmm. profession, whatever, and you could be great at talking about that all day. <laughs> but when it comes time to talk about something else, <laughs> right. things can fall down, or you just feel like, well, I'll, well, you're great to talk to at work, but I just I don't really feel like perhaps getting to know you outside of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another one is um, gossip, and this is one that I have observed a lot. And I continue to observe that, um, you know, people will uh, get together, connect over gossip and talking about other people's lives. They have amazing conversations, if you could even use that word, about talking about talking about other people. But there's this lack of reflection upon self or shading of self. Because they don't talk about themselves. They talk about other people and they yeah. bond over stories about other people. When it, But when it comes to like being vulnerable among each other about themselves uh no no exactly <laughs> yep absolutely yeah and unfortunately like some in these types of uh, environments typically what i've observed is a lot of you know backbiting slander that type of thing mm. which is not not good at all we all know that, that you know it's sinful uh and it's sad that people would bond over those things mm-hmm Subhanallah, and um, I've all, I've even observed people when it does come time to talk about themselves. There's this almost allergic reaction, right? And a complete refusal to even go in near or into those topics, mm-hmm. and often because there's a lot that's going on in those in those in that person's life right. that they're just not comfortable with themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's it's really sad because living life like that, having conversations, will keep you. Uh, lacking those intimate connections absolutely um, sex so sex can be used to feel like you are intimate with people um you know having one night stands casual sex promis- promiscuity uh you know porn even as well it might feel like you're being intimate with someone but it's, it, it, it can lack that and i've spoken with people who have you know been in these situations and you know they've said things like the only reason i did that was because i wanted to feel close to someone mm-hmm. i wanted to i wanted to feel something right um and you know using sex in that way is is well for one you know for us as muslims we believe that it's haram outside of marriage mm-hmm. but using that but using it in that way um as a means to feel intimacy is just really sad subhanallah that people would resort to that um mm-hmm. and yeah may Allah may Allah help us all with you know developing true intimate 
uh, connections with people that you know keep us away from these types of situations. Mm. Uh, and then emotional incest. So this is when parents share things with children that children are not capable of handling or should not know about. So one parent may talk about the other parent badly, for example, in front of or to the child. Mm-hmm. Uh, parents might share uh, details of their own internal struggles that the child may not be able to comprehend or handle. Right. Uh, so, you know, mental health issues, for example. Um, and, you know, children don't have uh, that capacity to to deal with these types of this type of information right. at a young age. Uh, and perhaps those situations arise because parents don't have anyone else to talk to. Perhaps they themselves are lonely. Mm-hmm. And so the parent might feel some, you know, uh, alleviation of their own struggle. But the child is overwhelmed. And, you know, if this is persistent, then, you know, it can really harm a child's development. They, they can be forced to grow up and mature beyond their their time. Right. And the parent feels like, oh, I'm intimate with my child, you know, we're connecting, but the child is going crazy because of what's happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Absolutely. And I, I've seen this in my own home, unfortunately, subhanAllah. So it's... It's yeah. a very common thing, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's this other group of people who are, can be called intimacy addicts. So there is someone in my family who I would probably categorize as this. So if you ask them, how are you? This person just goes off and starts to spell all their deepest, darkest secrets and problems and just emotionally dumps on people uh, to the point that it's inappropriate and overwhelming for another person because there's no consideration for how much do I know this person? You know, can I trust this person? Uh, Have we built a relationship for me to, to talk about these things? You know, the only concern they have is that they want someone to listen to them mm-hmm. and they only want to talk about themselves. So typically they'll dominate the conversation. They might talk loudly. Uh, they might over talk over you if you try to interject mm. or if you try and uh, share your own. Or if you do speak, they may not pay attention. Because if it's coming from you, then they will phase out or zone yeah. out. But they have to be doing all the emotional dumping. Yeah. And you have to be there for them and you have mm. to, you know, help them feel better about their situation. And yeah, subhanAllah. So mm. yeah. It shows you how much in need of true intimacy they are. Yeah. And they're very hungry for attention, affection. So that's, um, yeah, that's something that's very deep going on. Yeah, absolutely. And often these people have a zero idea that that's what's happening. They just have been doing it their whole lives. And I'm I'm speaking from experience. I see this mm. in, in my own life. Uh, and it's to the extent that if you were to try and interrupt the pattern, you know, there would be a fallout. There'd be the person would end up in the uh, trauma modes so that they'd, they'd be fighting. <laughs> they might fight with you. They might uh, run away. They might freeze up, mm-hmm. you know, subhanAllah. So this this is the same pattern. Yeah, yeah exactly. Absolutely. So all of this pseudo intimacy gives the feeling that, our needs are being met. We feel satisfied um, since we get, uh, since our attachment, abandonment needs are met. But this is a facade. It's not real, true intimacy. You know, you might be give, you might get a, a, a slight satiation 
of your need for or desire of for intimacy, but it doesn't last. It's fleeting. It's there for as long as you're engaged in that thing. And I think even in some cases, that even that doesn't exist anymore. And so all you're left with is the, the act. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, you get less and less satisfied and it's not it doesn't it doesn't cut it anymore. And that's because we are we fundamentally crave true intimacy. Right. And all all that we're doing when we do pseudo intimacy is, is essentially just feeding ourselves like fake you know food that doesn't nurture mm-hmm. um we're afraid of true intimacy because we are afraid of getting hurt because true intimacy would involve you know vulnerability and mm-hmm. um really revealing who we truly are right absolutely so the way that we can differentiate true intimacy from from pseudo intimacy just to realize okay what what am i doing right now is it true or fake intimacy if i'm connecting to other people you know the action is good but what is my motive if I have a good motive, which is I want to be emotionally connected to others, uh, I want to establish an authentic connection, genuine connection, be vulnerable. If I have good action, good motive, that's true intimacy. But if the action itself is good, as in I'm connecting with people, but the motive is not, the motive is unhealthy, I'm, I'm running away, but I'm calling that pseudo-intimacy, that's not really uh, intimacy. Right. And the brain doesn't know the difference. The brain says, okay, I'm connecting with people, but genuinely deep down, we know it at the level of the heart. We need to sort the difference between true intimacy and pseudo-intimacy so that we can heal from it. Right, and we can establish proper, healthy relationships, which can aid us on the path of healing and recovery. Right, so that is as far as attachment is concerned. As we said, there's attachment and there's fear of abandonment. Right, so all of this that we've talked about right now is the attachment part. What about fear of abandonment? And this fear of abandonment actually controls a lot of our actions. Right, from an early age as children, we might have been thinking, well, you know, the two people that have brought me to this world have abandoned me. Then I'm sure that everyone else in this life is going to abandon me. Right, if we have experienced emotional neglect, abandonment, abuse, that is the internal narrative. Right, it becomes a core belief, and then it becomes translated into every relationship that I walk into because I feel that the other person is going to walk out on me, they're going to abandon me, just like everyone else has abandoned me in my life. Right, and sometimes you might even push people away and force them to abandon us, right, through our behavior. Just to prove to ourselves that our abandonment issues are true. Mm. And I've seen this more times than I can actually count. Yeah. Where things are going very beautifully and the other person cares about me, but I push him or her away and continue to do that until they are forced to actually leave because they need to protect themselves. And I'm like, okay, well, you see, you were going to abandon me anyway. But I was the one who was doing the harm, <laughs> right? Yep. Um, And as a result, I won't get anyone to know me, right? I put masks on, I build walls, and I create the thing, the very thing that I'm actually trying to avoid. People try to learn about me. People try to encourage me to be honest and real. They genuinely care, right? But I refuse. I don't want to open. I'm afraid of getting hurt. Mm. And the more they try to open up and to help me in the process, the more I run away and push them away, even though deep down I am craving that intimacy, but I'm afraid of being vulnerable. Mm. And then eventually what happens is they're human. They give up. And they distanced themselves and I'd be like, see, you left me, right? I might as well stop trying, but I'm the one who did this to myself in the first place, right? Right. Yeah. And you know, uh, we also set unrealistic expectations or standards uh, within ourselves to prevent abandonment. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, I have experience of that. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I think that all of these things that we're gonna that we're talking about here ring true to a lot of us. Yeah, <laughs> particularly these unrealistic expectations. Yeah. So I mean, this first one is, you know, the, the person that you're perhaps in relationship with, they must only love you, mm-hmm. and if they show any type of attention or love for other people in their life, it means that they don't love you enough, or they will abandon you. You know, this ridiculously high standard. And, you know, it's unrealistic and it can create conflict within relationships where other people feel smothered and controlled and then ultimately walk away. And it reinforces that abandonment narrative that perhaps we might have going on in our heads. Right. Um, we might also feel like the person we're in relationship with will never abandon us if they're perfect. So if they have a flaw or they disappoint me, then that proves that they're just like everybody else and that they'll abandon me. So we set this incredibly high standard for people mm-hmm. that they're bound to fail mm-hmm. to meet because nobody's perfect. And we look for the perfection, but we expect to find flaws or even maybe fabricate them, create flaws just to prove to prove ourselves right. Mm-hmm. So it's this vicious cycle of just destroying relationships. SubhanAllah. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may also have a need for constant validation. So, you know, uh, we want, may want to be told that we're loved. Uh, we want to be complimented for how we look or what we have or what we do. We just constantly want to be made to feel good. And if, if the validation stops or if it is, doesn't meet a certain amount, then we begin panicking. Oh my gosh, they're going to leave. You know, they've, they've stopped. They did, today, today they did not tell me that I look good or today they did not say I love you enough. Mm-hmm. You know, this type of really irrational thinking. Um, and then needing constant attention. So every spare minute of another person's has to be spent with oneself. So we constantly want to be with them, spend every free moment with them. And if they're with others, it's a threat. It feels like a threat. Mm -hmm. And we conclude, oh, they're going to leave. And then uh, if we ask for favors, if we don't get what we want, then they will abandon me. So they may be setting a boundary. Perhaps they just don't want to do something but we would receive that as uh, abandonment or rejection. Right. Yeah. And, you know, this idea of boundaries, you know, being often in these situations, we feel that we have a right to have access to to that person at any time. So I need to be able to call them anytime and they must answer the phone, Mm -hmm. that type of thinking. And if they don't, um, or if they don't answer messages in in a timely fashion, then that must mean they don't love me and they're going to leave. Right. There's really this panic-driven way of thinking uh, about another individual that you might be in relationship with um, and and playing the narrative that you'll constantly be abandoned if they just don't meet these really high expectations that we've set. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it follows from this fear of abandonment also that there's fear of criticism, even if it's constructive criticism or feedback. Because if they point out a flaw in me, then uh, my brain tells me that you, the person who is saying that to me, are looking for a way out. You don't see me as perfect, right? You're fa- you're finding faults in me and you're going to back out. Whereas that's not what they're doing. They're actually trying to help us by giving us constructive criticism because we're all fallible. We're human. We're not perfect, right? Yep. But my mind interprets that as they're going to abandon me, right? So that's one other way. Another way is... Um, if, if a person, you know, we have a confrontation, there's a little bit of anger, which is normal to arise in any relationship. Oh my God, they're angry at me. 
you're being fed up with this relationship and you're leaving. Whereas, no, it just happens in every relationship. Mm. We have differences of opinion. Sometimes, yeah, we just have problems. We have altercations and people get angry. It's fine. We deal with it. But for us, it's like the alarm system is going off at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, some people feel that I'm, I'm, I'm so unworthy of this love that I'm going to eventually fail them or disappoint them someday. So I might as well just sabotage this relationship and leave anyway, because they're going to be disappointed in me sometime in the future. I just know this. So I might as well just walk out. Yeah. Right. This is one example. Uh, another example is, and this is very common. <laughs> it hits home for me and for a lot of us, <laughs> um, which is the idea that, um, you know, if we share something that is personal, if we are vulnerable at a particular moment, and that is amazing and then you know we go back home let's say or uh yeah we just finished that conversation we're done our mind starts playing scenarios all the time we're overthinking things and the worst case scenarios are playing inside our heads yeah what are they thinking they must think less of me they must be disappointed they must be they're not they're not going to be happy with me they're they they're going to leave me etc right so People, some people end up leaving that relationship just based on that mental chatter alone, mm. right? Even though nothing has happened, even though the other person is actually very proud of them for sharing these things with them. But that's what our mind tells us. Why? Because going back to that shame narrative, I'm not good enough, I'm not valuable enough, no one loves me. Yep. You know, so so that, that thing plays in our heads. Another example of, um, you know, the abandonment issues is playing games with the other person. A common scenario is being passive-aggressive, pushing the other person, you know, I'm mad at you, I don't want to talk to you, blah, 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 out of nowhere, right? We push them, push them, push them. They reach out, they want to reconnect, they want to know what the heck is going on. We push them, push them, push them. And then they give us space. We reach out to them. And if they want their space, because they're actually hurt by our behavior, we start asking why, like, why are they not talking to me? Well, honey, you started it, right? (laughs) Um, Instead of realizing that, we have been pushing them away. Right. Right. Or another example would be pushing particular buttons on that person or hurting them, knowing that that is really hurtful for them, just so they will eventually walk away or we push them away. Another very common example is self-pity and putting ourselves down, right? And just drowning in shame. I don't know why you love me. I don't know why you put up with me. I am so unworthy of you. You're just the most perfect person in the world. Mm -hmm. You're just saying you love me. But tell me again. Tell me more, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then questioning everything that they say and their actions as well. Right. And then to constantly make negative conclusions about their motives. You know, they're just being nice. They're using me. There has to be an ulterior motive. Sometimes it gets to borderline paranoia. Right. I, I bet they're nice to me because that's just something that they do in front of my face. But as soon as they're with other people, they start talking about me. There's something that is happening behind my back right? They say nice things about me, but they don't believe it. I don't believe it, right? I can see right through them, whereas the other person might actually be genuine and he cares about us or she cares about us, you know? So all of these examples and tons of other examples you can actually think about, you know, we set all of these systems to make us doubt real love and we end up destroying relationships, whether we know it or not. And this is very tragic and it is very damaging. So this, all of it, you know, the attachment and abandonment issues, they fall under intimacy issues. And these are part and parcel of the interpersonal and relationship aspects as part of complex trauma.
gets another characteristic uh, of the um, interpersonal relationships is trust issues. So as we've already established throughout uh, much of what we've talked about, people who have complex trauma um, have a hard time trusting people, Mm -hmm. largely because nobody has consistently met their needs. And as a result, they will conclude that the only person that they can trust is themselves. So this counter-dependence approach to life. And they can also believe that trusting others leads to getting hurt. So, um, you know, we will cut ourselves off from all forms of help. So if you think about just an example, um, if a father, for example, tells his child to go up on to a a high platform and jump and the the father says, I'll catch you. And uh, he doesn't catch the child. Um, but then says again, go up again and, and, you know, just fall back and I'll catch you. And each time the child does this, uh, you know, they're not caught, you know, it, it instills that essentially, they, you know, they can't trust uh, that person to be there mm-hmm. to catch them when they, when they fall. Right. So when someone else comes along and says the same thing, uh, then, you know, we, we won't respond to it because we're so used to that betrayal and disappointment. Mm-hmm. And so... This then will manifest in other relationships as well. So if we think about some common examples, you know, people might say things like um, or ask questions about relationships that they that they're in, where they say, you know, you know, I was in a relationship and there was some type of issue, um, for example, addiction, and you know, I was cheated on. We're still in the relationship. Um, do you think that we can work out our relationship and you know and you know get back on track and have a healthy relationship and the the challenge here is that you know breaking trust uh it takes a long time to rebuild it uh if both individuals are committed and you know working on that process i think sometimes people can underestimate how long it it takes to to rebuild this um and really there isn't a, a time frame that you can pinpoint but quite often it does it can take years to rebuild trust once it's been broken in a relationship. Right. Other examples, um, you know, might be, I'm just starting a relationship in recovery from an addiction and, you know, my partner, they're so jealous. They're always checking up on me. They're accusing me of seeing other people. They're playing mind games. They're smothering me, etc. And, you know, this all comes from this lack of trust. I mean, we haven't dealt with our own issues mm-hmm. around that, then it will inevitably start showing up within our relationships in this way you know and other examples another example would might be you know i've relapsed quite a few times uh now my family and partner don't trust me and don't believe that i'm serious about recovery or that i'm changing right and it's causing a lot of stress in the relationships and we might be the you know, people like in this situation might ask you know why don't they trust me and as we said before um trust takes time to build and in, in particular in this type of situation people want to see they want to see a change. It's great to hear about a change, and I'm sure that people in this situation would love to to trust another. But if they've been let down consistently, then they want to see that change. They want to experience that change, and it needs to be consistent. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, uh, these are some of the ways that, you know, the uh, trust can, can feature within our relationships. Right, right. Absolutely. I love the examples that you actually gave. And um, that metaphor of dad telling me to get up on the roof and jump and he will catch me and he doesn't and he fails me multiple times. And then I conclude that I can't trust anyone because they will just cause me pain. Mm -hmm. And then if someone trustworthy comes along to catch me and I, I'm going to refuse, right? Because I'm so disappointed from pe in people. I don't trust them anymore. Yep. And so it's Trust issues are very devastating consequences from complex trauma. You know, as children, many of us could not count on our caregivers, our family members to consistently meet those needs, yep. right? Either the needs were not met to begin with, or sometimes they were met only when the parents or the caregivers felt like it. So those needs were not consistently met. And so as a result, we reached a point where we concluded that we couldn't really trust anyone but ourselves because people are going to disappoint us eventually right. we had to rely on ourselves to meet our needs right um and so it just gets ingrained in me that if i want to trust other people it's going to open up myself to being hurt right it worked for a while but now it doesn't right and as a result i am not able to trust other people which means I am not able to have a healthy, meaningful, and intimate relationship with other people because that involves an element of trust, yeah. right? And so as a result, these trust issues start stirring up a lot of troubles and conflicts, and those issues prevent the relationship from actually growing beyond a certain point, right? We're so consumed sometimes by jealousy, possessiveness, and at the same time, we don't want anyone to get close to us as we don't want to get hurt and disappointed ourselves. We don't want to let our guards down because we know at some point that we are going to be hurt by people if they look inside, right? And those relationships are characterized by being shallow. They don't have that chance of becoming deep and genuine. Mm -hmm. And so those relationships are going to stop eventually. So the only way to actually develop a meaningful relationship is to actually become, start to trust and to lower our guards down. And that is the problematic aspect that we have here, right? And some of us actually found that we can't really trust ourselves. After having trusted only ourselves, some of us actually don't even trust ourselves, yeah. right? We're not as smart as we thought we were. We're not as trustworthy as we thought we were. We're not as disciplined as we thought we were. You know, we, we may have a dark side that we can't control, which is human, right? We might be a danger to ourselves, Yep. particularly with trauma you know when my mind is on survival uh, mode when i'm dissociating sometimes i might engage in self-harm um we might engage in self-sabotage we let ourselves down by making wrong decisions and all of this culminates in me not trusting myself anymore which fuels the vicious cycle of trust issues right so the dilemma here is i want to trust but i am afraid of trust i've jumped off that roof so many times after my father my mother my brother my sister my friend they promised me to catch me but they didn't mm -hmm. and this happened so many times so i actually camped on that roof and then, you know, a very trustworthy friend came along who seems trustworthy and loving and promises to catch me, but I really want to jump. I want to jump. Trust me. I want to jump, but I can't because it means I'm going to be vulnerable, mm -hmm. which means I'm going to be hurt, right? It's scary to death, right? And this is, this is a message to anyone out there. If you don't risk trusting the right people, you will never have an, emo an intimate relationship. Mm -hmm. 
right? And this is very common among the SSA community, among the recovery community. We have a lot of trust issues going on, yeah. right? We're, we we settle for shallow relationships and then we bail, or these relationships crumble on their own. Yeah, and you know it's probably it's important to mention that in order to have a healthy relationship both people involved have to be trustworthy right so it's it's easy to put lots of energy into trying to make the other person trustworthy so having like checklists and you know putting an effort or reminding them of things yeah but but that's misdirected you know we need to make sure that we ourselves are trustworthy we need to take care of our own backyard so to speak before we, we start cleaning other people's yeah sometimes we actually we are not the trustworthy person mm. and we want them to be trustworthy when they are but we are not yeah so we need to look at the mirror actually and realize that sometimes it's us not them yeah yeah subhanallah and you know many of us swing from you know having no trust in in others to having complete trust in a single day it's this pendulum that just goes backwards and forth mm. and the thing with trust is that it has to be developed gradually right you know it's it's wise to build a relationship slowly so that you can see if the person truly can be trusted. You know, you take things little by little and then you can maybe build upon them uh, to, to understand and, you know, gather evidence essentially to see if the person is trustworthy. That's, that's how you make judgment. Right. You know, um, and you can make informed judgment. So the thing is, is that if they do prove to be untrustworthy, then we should we should leave. We should we should not hang around. We shouldn't wait for things to change. You know, we should if it's if it if it, if we're not happy with how it is, we should leave. And you know, it's not our concern to change them and other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and if if people are not concerned about evolving and growing on their own, then we we aren't we are not there to impose that. We can't force people to do things that they don't want to. Yeah. You know, we want to go into an intimate relationship uh, in one day instead of being gradual. And then we ignore red flags that say that the person isn't trustworthy. And then we might, we end up in hurtful relationships. SubhanAllah. So yeah. it's very important to pay attention to the signs and look at what people are doing as well as what they're saying. Um, because the, the proof is more often than not in the pudding, which I know is a cliche saying, but... <laughs> But it's true. It's Absolutely. true. Yeah. And Allah has given us these faculties to be able to, you know, observe people and make judgments. And so, you know, we should we should trust in that, trust in what Allah has given us. Indeed. And becoming trustworthy is a, is a result of character. So honesty, love, humility, responsibility. You know, do people, do they have character? Do the people that you're in relationship, do they display these things? Mm-hmm. And, you know, character is a result of deep held beliefs. You know, I want to truly love people around me. I will. I want to be responsible. I'm committed to being honest, and you know, we're operating at a higher level of integrity and being humble, and serving people and taking care of people. Uh, this is the essence of character. Absolutely, beautifully said. third characteristic after talking about intimacy issues and trust issues is the you know big topic of respect issues right so if we look at complex trauma there's a lot of lack of respect going on 
the child didn't feel valued. There was a lot of neglect maybe going on, a lot of abuse. Maybe there was sarcasm constantly at home, at school. People were rolling their eyes, maybe ignoring us, talking over us, snickering, bickering, you know, taking shots at us, calling us names, maybe mm-hmm. constantly criticizing us over and over and over again, maybe treating us as or making us feel like a burden, that we're losers, that we're not good enough, not beautiful enough, etc., 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 right? All of these things happening over a long period of time, particularly during critical developmental years of childhood, they have a profound effect on us, Mm -hmm. right? We cannot neglect that. And not being respected, not, you know, not being respected as human beings was probably something that wounds us the most. Oh, yeah. That we feel that we have to be on guard the whole time, um, that we're walking on eggshells again, we're not feeling safe. And when we actually try to retaliate and say, hey, that actually hurts, what what was the usual response? Either they would start laughing or saying, oh, we're joking, you know, get over it. Yeah. Or whatever it is to dismiss our experience. But we knew deep down and felt that that pain was real and that it should not be ignored. And that's why, as adults, not being treated with respect is probably, uh, you know, the biggest hot button or triggering factor, right? Nothing hurts us more or nothing gets us to become angry faster than lack of respect or, you know, disrespect. Sometimes we can become hypersensitive to people's behaviors, that we read disrespect in everything that they do or say, even though that's not the intention, Mm. you know, their intention, Right. So when we feel that people are taking shots at us or, you know, calling us names, criticizing us or whatever they're doing, we are going to be ticked off severely and that's going to cause our relationships to suffer. So it's very important to realize that when we come from environments of complex trauma, where there was a lot of disrespect that was going on, we may want others to treat us with respect but we don't do a good job of treating others with respect. Right. We might actually be jerks. Just like, you know, you were talking about trust. Sometimes we want them to be the most trustworthy people, but we are not that. Mm. And the same goes here because we've been so in so much pain. Sometimes we can inadvertently be disrespectful to other people. So we need to take a look at ourselves as well. Right. Um, And there's another pattern that we also see is that, okay, well, we meet a new person, we treat them with respect. And then we have that at the back of our mind, which is the moment that you hurt me. The moment that you disappoint me, let me down, or treat me with disrespect, I will no longer treat you with this with respect. It's like I'm waiting for you to make a mistake so that I can retaliate and fight back. Right. Right? Or start being passive aggressive. Right. Or whatever. Right? In my mind, if you do something bad, you are not worthy of my respect anymore. I will come down to your level and it's gonna be on, <laughs> you know? And we will have a disrespect war. <laughs> right? It's not that Respect here is what is important, but rather the disrespect. I'm so focused on people disrespecting me rather than respecting me. So if I'm looking for disrespect, I'm going to find it Mm. and I'm going to read it into everything people say or do, right? So in a committed relationship where this is actually the dynamic, it becomes very hard to recover from that because one or both partners are going to be looking for signs and symptoms of disrespect and they're going to read it into everything. And we can imagine how toxic that relationship will become. Yeah. Yeah. And if we just take the topic of respect, you know, we can understand it as it relates to three things. So there's the general respect that we have for all people just because they're 
human beings. You know, um, we've Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has given us that that honor and that respect intrinsically, mm-hmm. and and you know, there's value in who we are, and we're human beings and not human doings. So, right. you know, the value comes from who we are as an individual, not from necessarily what we do. Right. And the other aspect is the respect that's given due to a person's position of authority. So we respect their uh, badge or slash position and or whatever it might be. So the respect isn't there because we know who they are and we value, the, you know, how th- their characteristics. It's more about, you know, you are in a position of authority, for example, and, you know, you're our boss <laughs> mm. or you're the prime minister or you're the king, you're mm. the queen or whatever you are. I may not like you, but I have to respect you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, quite often. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then there's the respect that a person has earned because of their character. Mm. And, you know, it, we should, it's, it's important to note that it's hard to give respect in the first two scenarios if the person is not a person of character. Right. Of course. Right. Yeah, so we can, you know, ha- we might have to respect people, but not actually like who they are. And, you know, people with complex trauma have trouble respecting themselves, given the fact that they weren't given respect as, as children. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we can often think that if, you know, my pa- parents or caregivers didn't treat me with respect, then there's something inside of me that was not worthy of that respect. So we end up not demanding respect as we see ourselves as being unworthy to start off with in the beginning. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, we, you know, we don't respect ourselves. And then we allow other people to treat us with disrespect. You know, it may be a, even with abuse uh, or we allow people to get away with not meeting the needs that we have within relationships. Mm. And we just take it because we're afraid of standing up for ourselves. Or if we do stand up for ourselves, then there's a guilt associated with it. The guilt for a setting what is a healthy boundary? Yeah, absolutely. This is a very common theme. Yeah. Being afraid of setting boundaries because we don't want to hurt people. Meanwhile, they're hurting us. Yeah. And this can happen with family members, colleagues, you know, intimate relationships that we have, our superiors, you know, all over. It's all across the board. Yeah. Yeah. SubhanAllah. And, you know, that, that lack of respect that we then uh, receive from others, uh, you know, we, we internalize that sense of unworthiness and it allows people to continue taking advantage of of us and we just accept it because we believe that um or rather we feel that we're good people and we never say no to anybody and you know we get everybody to like us so there's this people pleasing aspect mm. that you know a boundary feels like it would basically if i set a boundary i risk disconnection and people are not going to like me yeah yeah, they won't like me. So if I as if I can continue being people like me, um, I'll put up with the lack of respect that I receive. Mm-hmm. You know, so you know, I, you know, I don't respect myself, and the only way I can feel good about myself is when I get people to like me. So I don't set boundaries with people; they end up taking advantage and walking all over me. Unfortunately, so yeah, this is inevitably leads to resentment, and we either explode or run away and isolate, and we feel guilty for both situations Mm. and then it's just rinse and repeat over going through that same cycle again of of lack of respect not setting boundaries being taken advantage of resentment and then you'll be back at square one again absolutely 100 percent. yeah and even when we think about relationships that are abusive in nature we see that self-esteem 
and self-respect is eroding with time or has already eroded in that particular relationship. If we see a relationship where there's abuse going on, whether emotional, physical, psychological abuse, sexual abuse, you know, and the person chooses to stay in that relationship and takes on the abuse without standing up for themselves, we can think of a complex trauma and the fact that this person has experienced lack of respect as a child. You know, I don't, I don't, deserve respect i deserve what's happening to me right now you know at least this person is is tolerating me in this relationship whereas they're actually abused the whole time right so we need to understand and realize and internalize the fact that we need to respect ourselves and to realize we don't have to take abuse or lack of respect or any kind of crap from anyone because we are inherently worthy mm. and allah made us worthy right and nothing is going to change that we deserve better than this Right. For us to stay in a relationship that is abusive and that is a dead end and that shows no signs of respect whatsoever means we don't respect ourselves to begin with. It comes with loads of repercussions, including the fact that my self-esteem is going to suffer as a result. Okay. Right. And actually, this is a point of manipulation by the abusers themselves because they tell us, oh, you deserve this. You're lucky to have me. No one else would want you. Do you want them to know what you do or how you feel or look at you and so on and so forth? You mm -hmm. should be thankful that I'm putting up with you. And the problem is we believe these things and we believe that we are inferior compared to everyone else. And it's not just a matter of abusive relationships. Rather, if we think about relationships that are stemming from complex traumas and everything that we've been talking about in this episode, the, you know, we don't know how to have a relationship of equals where both are equal. Mm -hmm. Neither is superior nor inferior, right? But reality is one is going to be always superior. The other is always going to be inferior. Whether we're talking about a parent-child dynamic, right? The child is inferior by virtue of being incompetent in life or dependent. But then that continues, right? That's a problem. Or like having a partner and the other partner is an addict, Right. One is superior and healthy. The other is sick and inferior mm -hmm. because they're tied to that addiction and that addiction is sticking its toll on them. Right. And the problem is, if we're used to that dynamic, if that person who's dealing with addiction goes into recovery and becomes sober and they're healthy and they're technically equal to the other person in terms of that, the relationship dynamic changes. You know, we're not sick anymore. We're not needy anymore. And then we start feeling uncomfortable <laughs> or we feel uncomfortable because we want to be superior to the person who is sick and needy, who needs us. Right. I need to have that sense of being needed and wanted. Oh, yeah. So um, they want you healthy, but they need you sick yeah so that's basically one of the dynamics right so there are lots of dynamics we're just giving these examples just to show that if it's not a relationship of equals then that relationship is going to suffer right yeah and we can continue along that line so you know um you know in that situation you know you may uh, be knocked down purposefully um so you might hear things like so you think you're better than us now and and you're you're constantly being um, worn down basically by the person that you're in a relationship with, and they go right. and they knock you back down, and they continue taking shots at you until uh, eventually you 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 know you you're worn down and you're worn down and you relapse. Mm. So whether that's a parent or a partner, and then once you're knocked down, um, because you're in a state that the other person wants you in, it becomes you know a situation where they want you back. Uh, the relationship is back on, you know, poor you, let me help you, I'm here for you, all of this type of thing. So it's a really toxic dynamic Absolutely. of wanting to just keep people 
uh, in a in a place that helps another person feel good, uh, and that that's not good. Mm-hmm. You know, if you continue to grow, but the other person doesn't, the relationship will gradually drift further and further apart. Uh, and it's important to realize that both sides have the same underlying unhealthy issues. So for the relationship to work, both parties must be growing. Right. If they're not willing to work on their own stuff, the relationship will just not work out. Mm-hmm. And when you work on yourself, the distance will continue to grow with the other person and so much that you either leave or you stay and you reduce yourself to their level. You know, and, and unfortunately, some people relapse or get sick again just to maintain the relationship. Right. And that, that may be a hard pill to swallow to realize that, uh, you know, the other person has issues too and they have to work on them. Absolutely. But you should also look after yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Subhanal. And, you know, the most common undermine of a healthy relationship is not treating the other person with respect. You know, once respect for the other person is gone, the relationship is in trouble. Absolutely. And disrespect starts with little gestures, words, behaviors that build up over time until respect is gone in the relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, when, when disrespect, it becomes the norm and, it, and it's there within a relationship. You know, people will find fault with everything the other person does. You know, they be- become negative and critical of everything that they do. You know, they'll bicker and fight over the most petty of things. Mm. Uh, the growth in the intimacy just stops. And instead of thinking about the be- person's best interests and acting on those, you know, they may begin to start doing things that actually hurt the other person, right. that show them disrespect, that then treat them with disrespect. And that uh, is very, very difficult to repair because the damage caused by disrespect uh, can leave a really deep, deep mark. Absolutely. And it destroys relationships eventually. SubhanAllah. Yeah. yeah. And basically those um, those things that we've been talking about, respect and trust, these are fundamental and they are foundations of a healthy relationship, right? Yeah. Complex trauma with all of these dynamics that we've talked about, it erodes and it eats up those two things, trust and respect, right? Once trust and respect are gone, the relationship will no longer have true intimacy and it will gradually start to fall apart, right? So it's very important to take that into account. Other than intimacy issues, trust issues, and respect issues that we've talked about, there is another aspect, which is that there is trouble handling conflicts in relationships. As we've spoken about in the previous episode, we don't know how to cope with stress uh, when we come from uh, environments of complex trauma. A lot of times, uh, we don't know how to deal with conflict, uncertainty, right, challenges. So um, we don't know how to deal with conflicts in relationships in this context, right? Mm-hmm. And as a result, we tend to have more conflicts in our relationships than healthy people do. And we talked about that nanosecond response where we go from zero to hundred because of the shooting stress response, the survival brain, the alarm system, whenever we are under stress or conflict. And there is a nanosecond escalation of emotion. Right. I can be calm, I can be completely fine and calm, but then stress or conflict arises and I can just be a volcano in a second. And conflict means that someone is going to lose the argument. And be, that's that's how I interpret it. Because in my mind, if I'm in a state of conflict, it's going to be stressful. So one of us is going to lose, probably me, 
and I'm gonna end up with a lot of shame and it's gonna eat me up. So again, danger in my mind, my mind reads danger, danger, I need to survive, I need to protect myself. So how do we respond? Fight, flight, or freeze, right? So this is what happens. So if we're talking about fight, there's anger, it's an extreme reaction, an extreme response. We, I want to hurt them before they hurt me, I'm gonna intimidate them. Mm -hmm. And some people as a result, because this is continuous, they become addicted to their anger because it gives them, as we said last time, it gives them energy, it gives them that rush, they're addicted to the stress hormones, the stress release, right? So that's part of the mechanism, so fight. Another is flight, which is to avoid. So some of us avoid conflict at all costs. We don't want conflicts whatsoever. We want peace at any price. Please, I want peace. I want the peace of mind. Mm -hmm. You know, I will give in. I will take the blame. I will try to, try to make you happy. I'm going to avoid the issue that caused the conflict whatsoever. But that's not healthy. Yeah. <laughs> because any dynamic, we need to solve these issues. Otherwise, they're just going to keep on happening over and over again. Right? Or we may not try to resolve the conflict and just ignore it. You know, just don't even consider it. Because if you try, it might result in more conflict, so you might as well just ignore it and shove it under the carpet. And we know what happens as a result of that. It's going to explode eventually, yeah. right? A lot of us unfortunately choose that. We want to kiss and make up, as they say, never talk about it again. Mm. And it's very important to notice that if someone is actually avoiding conflict, a main reason for it you know, to either avoid the conflict or to put up with the conflict and just be passive about it is the fear of abandonment. Right, because I don't want you to leave me. Because I know if that if we are going to go through this conflict, there is a chance for you to leave me and end up destroying this relationship. So I will just keep, uh, I will keep up with it. Or I'm just going to ignore it altogether and keep on moving forward. But this doesn't work, mm -hmm. right? Another way of avoidance or flight is to cut the person out of your life and to run away. I'm just going to destroy this relationship. I might as well just destroy it, right? Um, and this is an extreme reaction where we don't give the other person another chance of conflict or hurt and we abandon them before they abandon us. So it ends up hurting us and hurting them. Right. And that person usually goes from being a friend to being an enemy, just like that. Right. Mm -hmm. We close our hearts to them. We lose respect for them and we just destroy the whole relationship. Right. So trouble in handling relationship conflicts is, you know, um, one of the characteristics here. And then the last characteristic is uh, having double standards. Yeah. So I guess we've all experienced these. So, uh, you know, people who have complex trauma would have experienced double standards at home. And if you think back to some of the parental uh, archetypes that we talked about, it's, cl it, it's clear to see that, you know, it's uh, that, that those may have may well have actually existed. So, for example, you know, uh, dad could be angry but nobody else was allowed to do that and you would be told to off if you if you were and you'd be right. you know told you can't be angry you have to suck up you know you have or another example would be you have to treat me with respect but we won't give you any uh, and I've, i think in my experience this is quite common in <laughs> muslim households yeah, parents feel like they can treat their kids in any any way that they want but not offer the same respect or boundaries for children mm -hmm. you know and you have to tell me everything that you did today but i, I don't want to have to tell you anything right you know i can check your phone you can check mine and you know it all goes on and on and on and you know these double standards that we have uh, in these home environments with you know parents and siblings can then go into our other relationships and then we adopt the same standards with others. So if other people impose that upon us uh, in some way, you know, you can 
uh, I can do this, you can't do that. I can go here, but you can't go there. That type of thing. Then we, it's more easy for us to accept it and then end up in a relationship that is unfulfilling. Absolutely. So if we, if we think about all of the characteristics that we've talked about, so cognitive, emotional, and the behavior, behavioral and interpersonal and relationship uh, characteristics and effects of complex trauma, it makes sense why this would increase the risk for lots of mental health issues in people that experience this, uh, for them to have self-esteem issues, suicidal ideations, and even, you know, uh, suicide in the worst cases. Mm-hmm. SubhanAllah. Um, so I, I think having gone through, you know, this episode and the last of these quite heavy, heavy topics, we can see that um, complex trauma takes a, a serious toll on how we navigate through life. Absolutely. SubhanAllah. The last topic that we will cover in complex trauma before we move on to the next episode where we talk in detail about healing from complex trauma, we're going to be talking right now about the concept of trauma bonds. In the 1980s, uh, the famous trauma addiction and recovery specialist, Dr. Patrick Carnes, developed the concept of trauma bonds, Mm -hmm. and he identified eight different ways in which a person can bond to their trauma, right? And how such trauma bonds are brought alive in our lives, right? We actually bond to our traumas. So uh, we're going to go through them one by one and um, see what resonates with you. And this basically wraps up our discussion for today, inshallah. Yeah, so let's start with the first one. So the first one, uh, trauma reaction, also known more commonly as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, this refers to a physiological uh, and or psychological uh, alarm bell reactions from unresolved trauma experience. So typically we see flashbacks here or intrusive thoughts, insomnia, uh, troubling dreams, physical symptoms, and a state of hypervigilance and, and many others. And, you know, if, if we think back to the survival brain that we talked about and how uh, it may have buried some of those experiences within the compartments in our brains, you know, later, um, sometimes many years after, those compartments can start to leak and we start to experience those uh, symptoms, the, the PTSD symptoms as a result of those experiences. So we, we may not necessarily remember those experiences, but the body keeps count of them absolutely uh, and they, they show up in our engagement interactions in the world so things like anxiety for example in situations panic attacks that mm-hmm. type of thing and then depression and um, mood disorders etc so the whole myriad yeah. of mental health issues absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah. that's trauma reaction the second type is uh, the second type of trauma bonds is called trauma arousal or trauma pleasure and this is very interesting so um Experiencing trauma or abuse has actually led some of the victims of these experiences to start to seek pleasure in the presence of extreme danger or violence or extreme risk or even shameful experiences, right? There is an adrenaline rush that is associated with these experiences and we might end up becoming addicted to that adrenaline rush, right? So we see, for example, people who seek danger or even jobs that are very stressful, very demanding, right? Because it's exhilarating. Others engage in high-risk, you know, thrill-seeking behavior, such as extreme sports, skydiving, race car driving, 
not that there's anything wrong with that per se, but the fact that they're seeking it to seek that high or that fix to run away from their problems. Or some of them seek more risk and more risk and more risk because the last excitement was not enough. They, they establish tolerance to the risk and then whatever they seek next is going to be riskier than the previous one, right? Right. And some of those people who have such a trauma bond, they have difficulty in being alone or being calm or being in low stress environment. If you tell them about meditation and mindfulness, they freak out because they don't want to be there. They always want to be on that adrenaline high, right? Some people resort to drugs like cocaine or amphetamines to speed up things or to heighten those, you know, high risk activities. Mm -hmm. And others, for example, they can become addicted to gambling, and they even, they even they go all in, quote unquote. Sometimes they gamble with their entire life savings or their entire fortunes. And this is an extreme example, but just to give you an example of what's going on. And when we talk about, you know, particularly sexual recovery, um, we see sometimes trauma response in extreme sexual behaviors, like people who go into um, sadism, masochism or BDSM, right? Uh, sex offending prostitution, having anonymous sex with people, right? Or high-risk sexual experiences, like, for example, having unprotected sexual intercourse with, an, with a person who's HIV positive, right? Mm. Or like having sex in public or engaging in webcam sex where you are known, your identity is known, and so on. These are extreme sexual behaviors, right? You're putting yourself at risk. And some people are actually addicted to arousing situations, right? Um, for some, high-risk sex has become like a drug which stimulates that adrenaline rush, right? So for some of them, the idea is that this has become addictive. These high-risk sexual uh, experiences have become like a drug which supplies them with that adrenaline rush that they need, right? And that adrenaline on its own has become the antidote to the pain, to the trauma that they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. In other examples, and we'll talk about this later, inshallah, as we go on into the episodes on sexual abuse towards the end of the season, but for some of us who have experienced sexual abuse as kids, if the early sexual experiences were violent and pleasurable at the same time, what happens is that our mind starts to associate pleasure with pain or fear, mm. particularly sexual pleasure and orgasms. And so all of these things become intertwined and associated with each other. And as adults, how does that manifest itself? We feel most sexual when it, when it is dangerous or risky or it involves an element of fear or humiliation. Mm. As a result, what happens is that, again, each episode is at a greater risk than the previous one until we may eventually get caught. Right, yeah. The, no, the, th the third trauma bond uh, is called trauma blocking. So this is efforts to numb, block out, and overwhelm residual feelings due to the trauma. So examples of this are compulsive overeating, uh, obsessive sports, excessive sleeping, alcoholism, depressant drugs. You know, there's a recurring theme where people are using some aspect of life in a unhealthy, addictive way to numb, comfort, relax, and just you know anything to escape the uncomfortable feelings. Uh, addiction becomes a solution to the trauma. Um, the neural pathway involved here is called satiation. So behaviors and substances that induce calming, relaxing, and numbing effects create electrochemical reactions in the brain that serve as an analgesic fix. And the neurochemical bottom line is anxiety reduction. So some survivors are caught up in vicious cycles 
of arousal and blocking and their behavior served to block out the painful memories of childhood sexual abuse. So unfortunately, they're caught between relentless memories and an unwavering addiction, subhanAllah. Absolutely, yeah. And then addiction can also involve like even people in the recovery communities, not just drugs or substances or alcohol. It's also like sex, masturbation, pornography, yeah. all of that. And that becomes numbing behavior because we're trying to block the trauma. We need something to calm us down. Yeah. And it becomes a vicious cycle, obviously. Yeah, anything that will make us feel better, um, that normally perhaps is healthy in the right context. Right. Um, and sometimes, obviously, there's not things that are not healthy completely, like drugs and alcohol. Like that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, or pornography and obsessive sex and stuff. Yeah, definitely. And then the fourth uh, trauma bond is called trauma splitting, and this is very important to talk about, uh, where trauma can actually be severe for us to start having dissociative symptoms. So, what do we mean by that? You know, the mind blanks out, mm -hmm. the mind separates from the body right this sometimes can actually start during the actual traumatic event itself where the mind blocks the experience completely we separate the you know mm -hmm. the mind separates from the reality and the reality is too painful to bear right um, when this event is very very traumatizing or it might actually happen later on where the mind ignores the realities that are going on by splitting off it just splits off these experiences and it doesn't integrate them into our daily lives right so one form of dissociation is amnesia right we forget people would say that they have gaps in their memories you know memorable events that they were supposed to remember that people around them remember were like we're completely clueless as if we were never there but we were but the mind didn't even register right we don't remember significant facts about let's say the trauma that we've been through right because our mind split off it didn't you know uh, integrate that um sometimes we may find ourselves in places specific places or doing specific things and we have no idea whatsoever how we got there right we were so dissociated out of out of touch with the present moment with reality right um some survivors of trauma experience dissociative episodes again feeling like the body is in one place the mind is in another place mm -hmm. as a reaction to a particular flashback that reminds us of the trauma or we may tend to avoid particular stories or parts of movies or any reminder of particular traumatic experiences right we may be forgetful constantly we may be confused we may have difficulty concentrating often and those are all examples of dissociation so the idea behind dissociation is to escape from a reality to a fantasy world that is not painful that is it because the brain again is trying to protect itself right protect us from any harm so Examples of that include like excessive daydreaming, right? Or we may compartmentalize parts of ourselves and separate them from each other to reduce tension, right? Um, there are certain fantasy addictive responses, such as romance addiction. People become too addicted to romance because it's a fantasy world mm. or artistic uh, addiction or preoccupation or even mystical and spiritual and religious preoccupation, right? Uh, excessive religious or spiritual preoccupation is an example of dissociation if it's done excessively because it's a trauma response to escape a form of reality into a fantasy, right? Some people live a double life. They can't escape the real life, so I'm going to live another life where I'm not me, mm -hmm. right? And again, extreme procrastination is an example of dissociation because there's an emotional element to it. 
right? And when this coping style becomes a pattern which interferes with living life, it is called a dissociative disorder. And on the extreme end of that, we find what is known as um, multiple personality disorder, which is now known as dissociative identity disorder, mm. right? Um, some people get hooked on psychedelic drugs and marijuana, for example, and these induce, for example, hallucinations, and they create an alternate reality. And the end result is just to escape the reality into a fantasy world. So this is um, trauma splitting or dissociation. Yeah, the fifth trauma bond is called trauma abstinence. And this is a trauma response where survivors deprive themselves from pleasure and things they need because of how they felt during the abuse. So the source of this is self-blame and shame from the trauma. And we often see compulsive deprivation occurring, especially around moments of success, high stress, shame or, and shame or anxiety. Uh, so examples include anorexia nervosa, a sexual aversion disorder, sometimes known as sexual anorexia, a compulsive saving, agoraphobia, and other phobic responses, poverty obsessions, success avoidance, self-neglect, underachieving, and workaholism. With this trauma response, we see survivors deny themselves basic needs at times like groceries, shoes, books, medical care, rent, and so on. And they avoid sexual pleasure or feel guilt with sexual experiences. Um, they can also hoard money and not spend money on legitimate needs and perform uh, in underachieving jobs or spoil success opportunities that come their way. And at the core of, the, uh, of trauma abstinence is a desire to be in complete control of life such that there is no room for uncertainty. And this makes sense given that the trauma survival brain is taking over here and trying to keep the person safe. Right, exactly. But it ends up destroying us in the process, the behaviors themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Uh, the sixth trauma response is called trauma repetition. And this is also very important to note because we end up repeating behaviors or seeking particular situations or people who are going to recreate the trauma experiences for us. That sounds very counterintuitive, but it's very common, right? The idea is that subconsciously, I'm going to redirect my efforts to try and resolve the unresolvable, quote-unquote, right? Um, I, want to, I want to have the upper hand on that thing that has happened to me, right? I need closure. So we see this, for example, with OCD, obsessive-compulsive disorder, repetition compulsions, mm -hmm. as well as reenacting particular traumatic scenarios. And it was actually Freud himself who coined the term repetition compulsion when he said that we return to the trauma and we recreate it in hopes that we can master it this time and we can have a different outcome the way that we want. And then we feel that we have regained control over the situation. But sadly, that never satiates us. Because we're stuck in repeating the past stories and the experiences and events, or even we project them on our current realities. We are stuck in the past trying to fix a past that is long gone. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, this can also manifest with specific people being very preoccupied with a specific age group. For example, uh, with children or teenagers. And we're not necessarily talking here about people who are preoccupied with them sexually, but rather because they are stuck at that age group, for example, right? So they revert to doing things that are common to that particular age group, like particular activities or interests or even engaging in their lingo mm. and so on, 
right? Some people repeat the same patterns in their relationships, right? Like jumping from one codependent relationship to another. This is a repetition of the previous traumas. They may repeat their same problems in their jobs. From one job to another, they repeat the same things. Or they find themselves in similar patterns in their personal or familial problems. And this is all an example of trauma repetition, right? And particularly when we talk about sexual abuse, again, we're going to revisit that later in this season, inshallah. But one example of trauma repetition and sexual abuse is, let's say, for example, a man uh, who, who experienced sexual abuse as a child by an older person, and it ended, up, it ended up being very traumatic. And again, there was pain and pleasure at the same time. And so it got ingrained in this man that the only way that I would be aroused is to go on grinder and engage in the same exact act that had happened by having someone else force me to do the same actions that were performed during the sexual abuse incident. And this is actually, we think that we might be surprised by hearing that, but it actually happens a lot, right? We recreate the trauma by setting it up. Mm. When we talk about anonymous sex or casual sex, particularly among men this can become this can become trauma repetition on its own mm-hmm. right but since it relieves the pain only temporarily the pain returns in waves after the sexual encounter is over and we are stuck repeating the patterns and again and again hoping for healing and a different resolution but that never happens the seventh trauma bond is trauma shame and this is when we feel unworthy unlovable and a lot of shame and self-hate as a result of the traumatic experience that we go through. So in this case, we see shame cycles going through the same thought patterns over and over that shame us, uh, self-mutilation even, so mm-hmm. cutting or burning or other uh, other things that hurt oneself and self-destructive behaviour, you know, expressing self-hatred through suicidal ideations, you know, having a shame-based personality, where you all constantly don't feel good enough, right. um, depression, and even codependency, personality disorder. And some survivors may, in reaction to trauma, set very high and unachievable standards to prove their sense of self-worth and to gain acceptance of others. So we, we talked about this earlier, uh, you know, having high uh, unrealistic standards for, for ourselves. Right. And then when, when they fail because the standards are so high, it just adds to their existing shame. So it becomes another reason uh, or uh, to go through that shame cycle uh, and repeat that pattern. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And the last trauma bond um, out of the eight is called, is itself called trauma bond. And here it refers to dysfunctional attachments and bonding that occurs in the presence of danger, shame, or exploitation. All right. So let's give examples. So when a person becomes very connected to their abuser, right, becoming very loyal to them, very supportive of them, and throughout their lives, they return to dangerous people who abuse or shame them, right? People who exploit them, people who make them feel less than. Others include, you know, abuse cycles, such as those that we find in domestic violence, for example. Misplaced loyalties that we see in cults or in cases of incest or hostage situations or even codependent relationships, mm-hmm. right? So what is common to all of these relationships is that they there is an element of loyalty or attachment, but it's insane loyalty, 
right? Or too much attachment. There's exploitation, there's fear, there's danger. And they also all have an element of kindness, an element of nobility and righteousness to them, but it's just blurred underneath all of that pain and shame and fear and danger. Right. These are all people who stayed involved or wished to stay involved with people who are dangerous to them. Right. And that's a trauma bond. Right. There's emotional pain, there's severe consequences, and even the prospect of death in this relationship, that relationship is literally going to kill me. This is not going to stop me from caring or being committed to the other person. And this is what clinicians call traumatic bonding. There is a dysfunctional attachment that occurs in the presence of danger, shame, or exploitation. There's also seduction, deception, or betrayal. And there is always some form of danger or risk that is involved. Knowing everything that we have spoken about in the last three episodes, now the question is, how do we heal and overcome complex trauma? So we've talked about the origins of complex trauma and the effects and the characteristics from cognitive, behavioral, emotional, as well as interpersonal and relationship Mm -hmm. uh, uh, perspectives. Next episode, we're going to wrap up this four-episode series and talk about how to heal from a bio-psycho-social-spiritual perspective. So that we will talk about in the next episode, inshallah. Inshallah. So with this, we have come to the end of today's episode. I hope that you guys have enjoyed it and learned from it, inshallah. Adam and I look forward to talking to you in the next episode as we wrap up our discussion on understanding and healing from complex trauma. Until then, stay safe and healthy. And we'll talk to you then. This has been Adam and Wahid Jensen in A Way Beyond the Rainbow. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh.